Hi, Crime Sound listeners. We're your hosts, Ashley and Ricky, and we're here today with a story that happened 27 years ago, which to me personally, I feel like wasn't that long ago, but it's a story that we've been looking into for a while now, and it's just too interesting not to share. If this is your first time listening to this true crime podcast, welcome. And for those of you who have been listening to us, thanks for being a part of the Crime Salad Squad. We have really been enjoying your support and engagement on social media with recent cases. Before we begin, we'd like to send a special thank you out to our new Patreon supporters. We have two new patrons this week, Rebecca and Emily. Thank you all so much for your support. You guys are amazing. You can be a helpful part of this podcast by sharing Crime Salad with a friend and give us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you're listening to us now. This really helps us grow and spread the word about our show. Imagine going back to your 10-year-old self. Now imagine yourself being kidnapped and held in a bunker underground for 17 horrendous days. 17 unimaginable days of not being able to see daylight, not being able to see your family, and not knowing what's going to happen to you. Two days before Katie's abduction, Katie was just about to be 10 years old. And if you remember being this age, a 10th birthday was a huge deal to most kids. (laughs) This is definitely true. I know whenever I was a young girl, it was all about throwing a party and getting gifts. Well, I mean, I don't think much has really changed with that. What? I'm not that bad. No, I mean, you're not that bad. I mean, I look forward to your birthday week. Mm Mm-hmm. Sure you do. So, a little bit about Katie in her early life. She was treated quite unfairly as a child living in Bayshore, New York. The day she was born, Katie and her mother, Marilyn Beers, were driven home from the hospital in a taxi cab because her mother had no real friends or family to give her a ride. Marilyn actually didn't even know who Katie's dad really was, so he wasn't in the picture to help either. Marilyn abandoned Katie at just two months old to live with her godmother, Aunt Linda, and her husband, Sal Ingleri. At just two months old, Marilyn dropped her off at Linda's house to get just a few hours of sleep, but those few hours turned into years. Aunt Linda was nice for the most part, but that all changed when she lost her leg to diabetes. Her godparents were family friends, but some of us have that family friend who we call aunt and uncle when they really aren't related. So when Linda lost her leg, this is when the abuse really started. They often treated her as a servant to run errands throughout the day, and even in the middle of the night, and at such a young age, where, I mean, I could see doing chores here and there, like putting away toys or little things, but at age four, she was found in the neighborhood, undressed, walking alone, where to some, probably thought that she was lost, but no, she was ordered to run errands. She was told to do things like the couple's laundry, and even walked across a dangerous road to buy them snacks like Hostess cupcakes and cigarettes. 
what in the world? Maybe this was a small little town, like a little convenience store, possibly they were familiar with Sal and Linda and didn't think much about it or just turned the other cheek and ignored it. But wouldn't you find this strange in the middle of the night? While Sal, on the other hand, was quite violent and abusive towards Katie. When she was around two or three years old, he began molesting her. Anytime he can get her alone, even on their way to school in the car, Sal would take that opportunity to do horrible things. There really was no escape from the abuse. She would even try to hide in the home and he would hunt her down. It's messed up to find out that this was happening behind closed doors for so long as her own mother neglected her and gave her up to this monster to care for her. Katie had no one to go to for help and to think that the very same people who were there in her life to keep her safe and take care of her were actually the ones who were abusing her. Katie's story is absolutely heartbreaking and so disturbing, and I can go on and on. I could not imagine letting a child roam around unsupervised, especially late at night. I know, and it just keeps getting worse from here. Eventually, Sal would have a heart attack, and Linda, Katie, and Sal all moved into Katie's mother, Marilyn's house. It was at this time that Marilyn became aware of the sexual abuse and she finally reported Sal to the police, and he was arrested. What a relief this must have been, getting rid of this monster in your life that just never seemed to go away. But really, this was just the beginning for Katie. And at this time, Katie was finally feeling safe, and after all of those years of sexual abuse, it all seemed to be over. With all of this darkness in her past, there was one man who was a family friend of Linda's, John Esposito, who was an absolute joy to Katie. I feel like he was a father figure that Katie never really had, and especially with the sexual abuse from Sal, it kind of gave her a feeling that maybe not all men were like Sal. He was a man that Katie looked up to, felt safe around, and often spoiled Katie and her brother with gifts, took them to amusement parks, toy stores, and a house to play in. Katie would say she loved him, and he was always someone that was just fun to be around. Over time, John was visiting a lot and paying special attention to Katie. He started trying to sneak her out in the middle of the night with promises of candy, ice cream, or even a puppy. Katie wanted to sneak out with him, but she was too scared. Eventually, over time, this fascination John had with Katie grew, and he had a plan to get Katie alone. At Katie's 10th birthday party in December of 1992, John attended her party being put on by Katie's godmother, Linda, at her house. Even though Linda promised Marilyn that John and Sal would not be there. John brought a Barbie dream house. This is something Katie really wanted and she was so ecstatic. Katie couldn't wait to put it together, but John insisted that they assembled it together and he told her he would come back the next day to put it together with her. John then asked Linda if it would be okay if he could take Katie to the arcade. Without running it by Katie's mom, Marilyn, and knowing it was absolutely forbidden, she agreed. John and Linda also had a good relationship. He would often do things for her, like buy her things, gaining her trust, the same way he did with Katie. So anytime he asked to spend time with Katie, she was like, oh, sure, go ahead and spend time with her. No big deal. 
So Katie and John left for the arcade, but instead they stopped at a store. He and Katie came across a video game at the store and they bought it. John knew she did not have a gaming console at her house, so they would have to play the game at his house. You can kind of see where this is going. And I can't believe how manipulating John is. Obviously with Katie, who's a young, probably a little naive, but also how he has everyone wrapped around his finger like he's the best person in the world. Oh, I know. He was so well known in the town and he must have been a complete sociopath because everyone just seemed to like him. They then went back to John's house to play their new game. John then led Katie up to the stairs to a huge open loft with a gaming area. He had soda and snacks in there, and the only place to sit in the entire room was on his bed. But something just did not feel right. Katie could sense that something was different this time. Didn't feel like the other times when they hung out. He then pulled Katie onto his lap, covered her mouth, told her he wasn't going to hurt her, and sexually assaulted her. At this instance, John Esposito went from hero to villain in Katie's eyes. John then took her to his office, and when he wasn't looking, she tried to dial 911. He then noticed what she was doing and grabbed the phone from her hand, picked her up, and threw her into the closet. Could you imagine how scary this would be? Katie's already been hurt by men in the past, and then after building a relationship with John, thinking she could trust him, this happens. It's just so awful. Once they were in the closet, John turned on a light to reveal some sort of mechanism that was attached to a coat rod. He used this to lift out a 200-pound cement slab, which exposed a dark tunnel. He looked at Katie and tells her to get down there. The next thing she knew, John picked her up, dropped her in this hole that was about a three-foot drop until she hit the bottom. It was pitch black. Once she was in the hole, John jumped in after her, pushed her through the tunnel, somehow maneuvering himself in front of her, opening a door. The next thing Katie knew, she was in an underground room. Before we go any further, I'd like to talk a little bit more about John Esposito and who he was as a person and exactly how he became such a big part of Katie's life. John Esposito was a 43-year-old general construction worker. And 15 years before kidnapping Katie, John tried to pull a young boy into his car in a Long Island shopping mall and was arrested. Later on, John tried to apply to be a big brother and was denied. Big Brother is a program designed to put at-risk children with a positive role model. John quickly tried to cover up the story by claiming the offense belonged to his twin brother. But John didn't have a twin brother. Although this didn't discourage John, he quickly came up with a new plan. John then tried to make these connections on his own and published his own ads. These ads stated, Every young boy needs a positive man in their life. He also lied in these ads and said he had been a big brother for 10 years. John's ads were very successful and he quickly became popular in the community. He often had young boys over his house to watch TV, but the only TV in the house was in John's bedroom and the only place to sit in the bedroom was on his bed. 
He would give these kids gifts and mostly targeted poor and broken families. He was very liked by other adults and they never really saw him as a threat. In his backyard, he had things that attracted many kids and parents with a pool, a deck, and a basketball court where kids often played. Katie's brother was one of the boys that were targeted by John after his mother, Marilyn, replied to one of the ads. Katie would often go along with her brother to hang out with John, but back then, John's focus was much more on her brother than her. It was during their time together John started molesting her brother, and even though Marilyn never knew about the abuse at the time, I think she was becoming suspicious because she was becoming more and more cautious about John being around her children. Back inside the dark, cold, underground room, John completely turned into a different person from the John that Katie knew and looked up to. John made Katie record a message into a tape recorder, having her say, I've been kidnapped by a man with a knife. John then used this recording at a payphone, leaving a message on Linda's answering machine. But if you remember, John had Linda's permission to take Katie to the arcade. To cover this up, John falsely claimed that Katie was kidnapped while at the arcade. However, security footage shows that John entered the arcade by himself without Katie. So right away, police have their first huge red flag. Yeah, you're right. And police immediately suspected John and were at his house right away. We're going to take a quick break here to tell you about BetterHelp. BetterHelp is an online service that I personally use for my mental health. They provide a number of professional licensed counselors who specialize in all situations that may be interfering with your happiness. It's seriously my personal outlet to get my mind right. It's affordable. It's so convenient. I decided to give BetterHelp a shot when I was going through a very anxious part of my life. So I just signed up and I was matched with an amazing counselor who was so willing to talk with me right away. We actually set up a video chat later in the week to catch up. We are all so busy. Give yourself the care that you need today. Start living a happier life. As a listener, you'll get 10% off your first month by visiting betterhelp.com slash crime salad. Join over 800,000 people taking charge of their mental health. Again, that's betterhelp.com slash crime salad. There's even a photo of John being questioned by police that we'll post on our website. And little did they know that Katie was right below their feet. The search begins for Katie, a newspaper article that we came across dated December 31st, 1992, states that police focused on people that were in Katie's life as suspects in the case. Her godmother Linda's husband, Sal, was a huge suspect. And if you remember, Sal was arrested in October and charged with first degree sexual abuse of a minor for molesting Katie. And the other person in question was family friend, John Esposito. And he was supposed to be with Katie at the arcade when she disappeared. However, this article states that both men that were questioned denied any involvement in Katie's disappearance. But police had no other suspects. Although former police chief of detectives Dominic Verone was already on to John after he interviewed him the next day. Dominic asked John, what do you think happened to Katie? 
And he answered, I think something dirty happened. Dirty? Oh my gosh, this guy's so disgusting. Yeah, I know. And while cops looked at others like Sal, Linda, and even Katie's mom, Marilyn, John's past soon raised deep concerns. Dominic said they learned that he had been involved in an abduction of a seven-year-old child 15 years prior to Katie's disappearance. Dominic said at this point on, we knew John was our main suspect, but we had no idea where Katie was. Katie described the underground room as dungeon-like, saying, I remember the walls were yellow because he had egg crate foam soundproofing. There was a suspended box in the air where I was going to be held. It was basically a box within a box, maybe two feet off the ground, she said. It had a door on it with a padlock. There it had one of those blue camping mattresses. There were a couple of blankets and a TV in the corner. There were handcuffs and chains on the wall, which he put around my neck a couple of the days. John was so sure they wouldn't find Katie that he would allow them in the house and his unattached garage. The dungeon sat directly below the unattached garage, and Katie could often hear them above her having conversations with police. Eventually, John would insist through his attorney that the resident team leave the unattached garage and stay in the main house. This was a calculated move by a man who knew exactly what he was doing. There was a TV in the dungeon so that Katie could see the news, and she could see that police were still looking for her. Some days this gave Katie hope, but other times she didn't know if she'd ever escape. Wow, that's so messed up. And being that she had a TV to watch police search for her shows how twisted this guy is. It's like he was trying to get under her skin and break her down mentally. I can't imagine how she must have felt. Yeah, it's pretty horrible, but Katie was a smart girl, and, you know, it's pretty amazing that she was able to still have hope. Yeah, definitely. And you know, we never came across it, but I just wonder if she ever saw John on the TV as a suspect. But as we know, for the most part, police don't want to scare away their suspects, so maybe this never happened, but still, it's interesting to think about. Yeah, you're right. I mean, that would be awful to see your abuser on TV like that. So at this point... Police were amping up pressure on John, began following him everywhere he went, planning to polygraph his entire family. With the police hot on his trail, this gave him less time to join Katie in the dungeon, and he began making less and less trips to see her. But every time she would hear the voices of police officers, she'd get a little bit of hope. But then they would leave, and she'd get depressed again, thinking she'll never be rescued. And this must have been such a roller coaster of emotions for Katie, as police were on and off the property every day. In the dungeon, the conditions were awful, and Katie was left with only a garbage bag to use the bathroom. She often slept and ate next to her own waist. How awful is that, that she had to live in those conditions? And also, what I read is that she never ate normal meals, just a bunch of junk food. Day after day, Katie was not giving up, and the police and those who were involved weren't giving up either. Police then made an interesting discovery thanks to a tip from a psychic. The psychic made a claim, and he thought Katie was underground, and John had her with him. Police decided to analyze the audio from the recording that John sent to Linda, and they found that the audio had almost no background sound at all and thought it could have been in a recording studio or in a soundproof room. 
Although they had no way of knowing where this was exactly or what happened, it did give them some new perspective on the case. And then, one day, while she was in the dungeon, she heard a group of people above her. She screamed on the top of her lungs, pounding on the walls, making as much noise as possible. But it seemed the police didn't hear her because the voices slowly faded away. The police didn't hear Katie, but John did. This was too close of a call for John and he knew that he needed to do something to prevent Katie from doing this again. And he decided to take away some of her freedoms. The next time he returned to the dungeon, he decided to restrain Katie from now on. So he put a lock and chain around her neck, restraining her to the ground. She spent a few days like this and then one day, she saw a gold shining key laying on the ground in her dungeon. She had no idea what the key was for, but then she thought it could be helpful in the future, so she just hid it under her pillow. She quickly learned that the key she found on the ground fit the lock that was on her neck. She began to take it off when John was away, but she would put it back on when he came back. She would even go as far as counting the links on the chain to make sure she put it back on the exact same way when she took it off. Katie was determined to survive, and she grew tougher and tougher each day. And even though John did sexually abuse her while she was in the dungeon, she knew that he wasn't going to kill her, because she knew that he truly believed he was in love with her. She later said that she thought he may have tried to convey that to her physically by raping her, but she honestly believes that John was in love with her even though he was 40 and she was 10 at the time. Knowing this, Katie began to come up with a survival plan. She knew that she could use his love for her as a way to manipulate him. 14 days in, Katie had a plan to break John down emotionally. She was very smart and she began to use John's feelings to her advantage and started to play sick, knowing that this would worry John. Katie would scream all night long, pretending to be sick and would barely touch her food when he would bring it to her. You have to remember, John loved this girl and he didn't want anything to happen to her and more so, he couldn't let her die. This was a very difficult but very smart move of Katie and her plan was actually starting to work. Even though she was probably weak from not eating, she felt like this was the best escape plan. A few nights go by like this and John was beginning to crack. He absolutely feared for Katie's life. On day 17, John did the unthinkable and led police straight to Katie. Early in the morning, Katie heard John entering the tunnel and she was scared for her life. John never came down to see her this early in the morning and she sensed something was really off. For the first time, she thought John may have been coming down to kill her. She then began to hear other voices and see flashlights shining down the tunnel. Her first instinct was that men were coming down to hurt her. Maybe they were friends of John's. She then heard them say, we are the police, you're safe now, but she still didn't trust them. It wasn't until she actually arrived to the police station that she knew she was actually free. When police searched his home, police found pictures of other children, videotapes, candy, toys, and restraining devices and later learned that the bunker was built by John a year earlier with Katie in mind. It makes you wonder, with the things that they came across, were there others before Katie? How many, and where are they now? 
Finally, Katie was rescued from this real-life nightmare. Hours after her rescue, she was interviewed intensely while everything was still fresh in her mind, as they commented on how smart she was. Her mom, Marilyn, and Linda fought to get custody. Marilyn agreed to not have custody for a year and was given a list of things to accomplish to get custody back, but failed to do so in that time. Maybe this was a good thing. Both Linda and Marilyn lost that privilege and Katie was placed into foster care and later adopted by a loving family and was on to a better path. Although John Esposito pleaded guilty for kidnapping and got 15 years to life in prison, he said that he never sexually assaulted Katie. He once said, I know I'm guilty of my crime, but I believe I've been punished enough. I mean, I didn't kill anyone, and when I started my crime, I really thought it would be good for both of us. But during a September 4th parole hearing at a state prison in New York, John was asked if he had ever touched Katie inappropriately. I'll be honest, John said. When I was convicted, my attorney said, don't admit to anything but kidnapping. Now I realize that was a mistake. I shouldn't have listened to him. So yes, I did touch her. I never said it before. John, at age 64, was found unresponsive in his prison cell later that day. It was later determined that he had died from heart disease. So I guess John kind of confessed, but never fully confessed to what he actually put Katie through during those 17 days. And as far as Sal, the other disgusting guy, he was sentenced to 10 years, guilty of sexually abusing Katie, and refused medical treatment after collapsing in his prison cell and died. Today, Katie is very inspirational to other kids who may have went through abuse, neglect, or have stories like Katie's. She uses her devastating experience as a young child to help others. In interviews, she explains that during those 17 days, she had to have something to fight for to keep her motivated to be free. This is what kept her alive. She is now free from the neglect from her mom, the sexual abuse from Sal, and the abusive treatment from Linda, and also her captor, John Esposito. She now works for the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children. She has two children of her own and a loving husband and lives by the words, don't let your past hold you down. So this concludes the amazing survival story of Katie Beers. If you want to see the actual bunker Katie was living in for those 17 devastating days, you can see these pictures on our website at crimesaladpodcast.com. And also we'll post a link to Katie's book called Buried Memories that can be found on Amazon. You can support Crime Salad directly by signing up for a Patreon at patreon.com slash crimesaladpodcast or by leaving us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. And remember to follow us on Instagram at Crime Salad Podcast and be sure to tell a friend about Crime Salad. Thank you all so much for listening. Crime Salad is a true crime podcast delivering a healthy portion of crime. And here's a quick message from our friends, Direct Appeal. On April 23rd, 2007, I was convicted of the murder and dismemberment of my husband. On Direct Appeal, we examine the murder conviction of Melanie McGuire following a highly publicized trial. Looking at the evidence that was presented and the evidence that may have seemed insignificant at the time, we form our own conclusion about Melanie's guilt. 
I know when I should have left. She would never do this, but I think she knows something. Am I telling them I'm having an affair? Nobody's asking. He owed money out on the street, and that's how you get shot here and here. It's unlikely that her pistol was used in this crime. It's not about who's innocent or guilty. It's about a notch in your belt. Searches that include how to kill your wife, how to poison your wife. They had bags that contained victims' parts. Prosecutor is fierce. You will be taking the stand, literally live on court TV. I expected the worst, and what I got was one step shot of the worst. To listen to Direct Appeal, please download and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Crime Salad is a Weird Salad production. Are you kidding me? That was perfect. All the blood, blood, all the pain, pain. All the blood, blood, all the pain, pain.